from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 15 through 34. Sorry, this is very boomy. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. If um, you missed the intro last week, I'll just briefly catch you up. The reason why uh, we decided to journey through, and it's a journey, through the book of John is because I believe we need more opportunity as individuals, as a, as a community, a church family, to slow down. It's, it's odd, it's a very um, unusual feeling to on one hand experience uh, shutdown, uh, while at the same time, like nothing's really shut down. The world just continues to race along and I would suggest that perhaps now more than ever, it feels like, um, yeah, the world is, is just speeding up. And there's this sense of we must make up for lost time and we need to do more and um, just get on top of more and, and all of these things and there's just this, 
subtle but definite growing sense of anxiety. If this does not apply to you, praise Jesus. That's awesome. Keep going. Do whatever you're doing. If it's working for you, wonderful. Um, but I talk to a lot of people. I, I try to listen. And uh, I believe the consensus at some level is uh, the world is just sort of spiraling um, Anxiety levels are not leveling off. Um, yeah, these are, these are challenging, uniquely challenging times. So I thought, let's slow down. Let's walk with Jesus. Walking forces one to, uh, to sort of re, readjust, to adjust your, um, yeah, the, the rate of acceleration. When I was... Uh, living overseas, living in London, super cool, but very frenetic city. Um, we didn't have a car for about five years um, because you can do that in London. Even though we had, I think we didn't get a car until our third kid was on the way. Is that right? I don't know where Shirley went. Judah would be our third kid. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get a fact check going here, but it doesn't matter. It's and uh, I rode my bike everywhere. And it, was, it felt like I was somehow always behind because everyone else was just racing by. And in retrospect, I, I just want to reclaim that sort of that rhythm of life. But we're just slowing down. And sure, pe- people will, will pass us up. Um, and that's okay. Because Jesus has designed us to live at a particular rate that involves a whole lot of his grace and rest and good work, sustainable work at a sustainable pace. So, John, walking with Jesus. This is what we're gonna do um, for like the rest of the year and then some. Um, And this is week two, so there you go. If you're just jumping in, that's where we're at. This morning, we have been introduced to John Not the John who wrote the Gospel of John. That is arguably, I think most scholars, commentators agree that the John who wrote the Gospel of John is probably John, son of Zebedee, uh, one of the disciples of Jesus, the beloved disciple, the same one who, who reclined on the chest of Jesus that night that they were enjoying their last meal before his crucifixion. That, that's the John who wrote the book. But in the very outset of John, we're introduced to another John. John the Baptist. Not the Southern Baptist, but John the Baptizer. The guy who's, he may have been Southern Baptist, I don't know. He's busy baptizing people. Which is a bit of an odd thing to do telling people that they need to repent and prepare themselves because the king is coming. The long-awaited Messiah is about to appear, so get yourself sorted out. Um, Let me dunk you underwater as a symbol of purification so that when the king arrives, your your, your heart will be right. It would seem that that's the idea. Um, It's a bit of an odd, odd thing, baptism, really. There's not a whole lot in uh, the Old Testament that actually talks about baptism. I think someplace in Ezekiel 36, if I'm not mistaken, talks about being purified by the sprinkling of water. 
Other than that, it's um, most of what we know about baptism in the ancient context is contained more within just sort of the extra biblical traditions and writings and these kind of things. Nevertheless, this is what John was doing, preparing people to receive uh, the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel who was to come and restore the kingdom to God's people. Um, And he's an odd character. John is preparing a generation to meet Jesus. And I love that. I love it because it makes me think about, well, what, what, is there something about that that might inform us as to how we might prepare a generation, prepare ourselves, prepare a city to meet Jesus in a, in a particular 21st century way? Now, to be sure, no one's gonna do it like John did it. It was a very unique time in a very unique um, way. But there, there is something there. There's something there because it's not just for one generation to meet Jesus. Jesus keeps introducing himself over and over and over again in cities and places and generations throughout history and he invites his people, that would be us, to participate in the introduction. So there's something about preparing oneself or like John, preparing a generation to meet Jesus. So the question I wanna put out for us today, what might it look like for us to prepare Portland to meet Jesus? What if Jesus was about to reintroduce himself in a really unique way to our generation, to our city? I mean, it's not too hard to imagine, right? In the wake of like, you know, the stuff, 2020 and the pandemic and all these things. It's like, this is exceptional. It's not, it's not something that's not ever happened in history before, but it's, it's exceptional for our generation. And I keep thinking to myself, I keep, even, even as many of us in here have been praying, occasionally someone will say something, and I've said it myself, I sense the Holy Spirit saying that Jesus is about to introduce himself in a very unique way. Uh, Revival is often the word we use, where all of a sudden, circumstances come together, something unique, a moment in history takes place, and Jesus is there. And he includes, he invites his church, us, his people, to participate in this, this thing that he does. He's always been up to. So what would it look like for us, like John, to prepare a generation, perhaps a city, our city, to meet Jesus. Do you remember, um, if you've ever like m- met Jesus? Do you remember that? Do you, do you remember the moment or the season? Or perhaps you, you just grew up. It's like Jesus was always in the house. Mama and Papa were always talking to him. Took me a while to figure out that he was invisible, but very real and constantly like a part of the family dynamic. And maybe that was your story. But do you remember like what led up to the moment when when Jesus became like very real to you and you began your own relationship with him? Like what what did that journey look like? And was there was there like a 
a preparatory uh, event? Was there something that happened that maybe in retrospect, you can look back at and say, oh yeah, God was really getting me ready. Or perhaps like you, you're like, if he was preparing me, I was oblivious to the fact. Because when he showed up in my life, it was like, hello, like uninvited, unexpected, just all of a sudden, Jesus in my life. Very unnerving, very unnerving. It looks differently, I think, for everyone. You could probably discern some common trends, like what happened like this, and maybe there was a, a, a crisis in your life. Maybe, maybe there was something that you were feeling particularly weighed down by, like guilt, shame, a conviction of sin. That's oftentimes how it works. Perhaps there was a, you found yourself in a desperate situation where you had like a very real need. We'll find that as we read through the book of John, oftentimes Jesus would meet people in the moment of a crisis where they needed to be healed. Or one of my favorite moments, John chapter 10, we'll get there in a few months, um, Jesus meets a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery, and she was broken to the core, riddled with shame. The whole town, it would seem, had, had rallied and, and come against her, and Jesus meets her in that moment. And she doesn't need to be told that she's a wreck, and she's a sinner, and she's all this and that. She knows it to the core. Jesus meets her in that place and offers her forgiveness, a chance to start over. Redemption. What might it look like for us as a church community? Together to do something, to participate with the Holy Spirit in such a way that we are beginning to prepare our city to meet Jesus in a very real, awesome way. Now, there's a few things here that I think just are super helpful, and I want us to work through them. As always, there, this, this passage that Shirley just read, it's chock full of all these paradoxes. It's this and that, and something just right in between. Like the wonderful tension that Jesus just loves to live in. So I want us to consider some of these things. The first one, um, verse 20. A bunch of people are beginning to question John, who are you? Like, who are you, for real? You're weird, and you're dunking people underwater, and you're, you're doing something that would seem like you, you have, like you're acting in authority. Who are you? Are you Elijah, one of the old, one of the prophets of old, who was said to, who would somehow return in a way before the Messiah would come? Um, are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, Moses, he says that one will come after me, a prophet will rise up among you who will speak words as I have done. And, and so there was, a, there was a, a few characters that people who were asking John had in mind. Are you this guy? Are you that guy? Because you're doing something that feels very like, like something's about to happen. You're telling us to all get ready for the king who's about to come. Are, are you one of these sort of apocalyptic characters? And John's like, nope, nope, I'm not Elijah. In fact, he was actually a type of Elijah. I don't think he realized it. I'm not the prophet, whoever that's meant to be. And I'm not the Christ. I'll tell you who I am. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. I'm the one declaring in the wilderness, prepare the way 
for the king. But I'm definitely not the Christ. I think this is a good starting point. Um, In preparation to receive the king, in preparation to meet Jesus, here's one very, very important thing to have a firm grasp on right at the beginning. You are not Jesus. I am not Jesus. And oh, what a relief it is. And you might think that's, that's the dumbest thing ever. Okay, move on. What's, what's your next point? This is a super important point. I'll tell you why, because no matter how much you might think it's silly, or how much you might think you know it, like abstractly or theologically or in your head, oftentimes we, individually and corporately as a church, make the dire mistake thinking that, oh, well, we've got to tell the world about Jesus. We've got to tell our friends and our city and, and, and just everyone's got to know. And so we can begin to do things and communicate in such a way to where it's not actually even about Jesus at all. It's about me. And you know how I know that's true? Because, um, well, I'll tell you for me personally. So I've confessed this before. I have a really bad sin habit. You wanna know what my sin is? You guys wanna know what my sin is? I don't rest well. In fact, I'm, I don't rest well at all. I work like a maniac. And even when I think I should, I should take a day off and rest, you know what I do? I spend the whole day just like working on the house and like doing things and reading seminary books, thinking like, well, this is kind of restful because it's not my normal routine and I don't rest. And then when I try try to rest, I just can't turn it off. My mind's racing. I don't sleep well. I don't know how to rest. And I believe I know why, at least at some level. I think I'm Jesus. I think I actually think I'm the Christ. And if somehow, if I rest for too long, everything's gonna come crumbling down. It's all gonna come crashing down. The church is gonna fail. My kids are gonna turn out terrible. My, my marriage is gonna just crumble. It's, everything's gonna go wrong because it's all on me. I'm the Christ. And so I don't rest. Even though I know that's like just completely ridiculous in my mind. I wonder if anyone else in here can uh, relate with my sin. Thank you, I see that hand. (laughs) I see that hand, young man. So it could be convicting, but I hope, I hope it's actually more liberating than anything. Because if you're like living in that constant like like weight, you're like, man, I I I know I'm not Jesus. Come on, don't be silly. But you find it very difficult to rest, or you're just strung out because of the stress and the anxiety. Maybe you're carrying weight that's simply not yours to carry. 
Or maybe you're carrying weight in such a way where on some like deep soul level, you think that actually this is on me. And if somehow I set this down for too long, it's all gonna come crashing down. So that could be good news. For some of you, like myself, I I want you to hear me. I'm trying, I'm belaboring the point because I think we need to hear it. We need to be reminded. We need to remind ourselves constantly, I'm not Jesus. I can't carry the weight of the world. I can't even carry the weight of my own life. It's too hard. It's too exhausting. Jesus, help me. I'm not the Christ. Here's the flip side. Here's the paradox. In verse 23, John He goes on to quote from the prophet Isaiah chapter 40 by saying, I'm the one who's meant to cry out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let the high places be made low, the mountains come low, the valleys come up. Let the rough places be made smooth and the crooked paths straight. I'm telling you to sort yourselves out because the king is coming. And so there's this, there's this paradox. On one hand, John is saying, oh, this is, I'm not the Christ. This is not even about me. Never mind who I am. I don't even know who I am. All I know is that the king is coming. And you need to get ready because it's all about him and this thing that he's going to do in our lives. And sort yourselves out. Because as he's coming, there's going to be a lot of different theories about who is this Jesus really? What is he doing here? What is his aim? And how oftentimes does someone, a would-be inquirer, so I'm curious, wondering, well, who is this Jesus really? Because my life is falling apart like everyone else's, and I'm not sleeping well either, and I'm wondering if there isn't something to this Jesus person. And I'd like to find out more. And so I come to church thinking maybe there'll be a guy there standing on the stage talking too loud about this Jesus. And they hang out a little bit. And they look around thinking, well, I don't see Jesus per se. But apparently these people are meant to be like his uh, body. Hands and feet, appendages. And there's something about us that is meant to actually be like Jesus. Like Jesus in the flesh, as it were. Go figure And so we play a part. There's something about the way we act, particularly as a community, the way we love each other, that is supposed to reveal something about Jesus. So it's not about us, but it kind of is about us. It's all about Jesus, and I have a real responsibility to present him in a way that's helpful. The church, our community, is meant to be like a sign. Something about the way we are interacting with one another and the world out there that's supposed to point people. This, this, if you're looking for Jesus, just be in the community for a little while. Watch the way we love each other. Watch the way we forgive each other, watch the way we serve one another and our neighbors and the world and our enemies and and that'll actually give you a glimpse, that will point you in the right direction, how oftentimes does the church, instead of being a signpost, we become a roadblock. And then we end up saying these, forgive me, this is gonna offend some of you, but we say these lame things online like, oh well, 
I'm so sorry that the church offended you, but we're just humans and we're not Jesus. I, I get the sentiment, but it's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. We are representatives of Jesus. And if you look at the church and you see nothing but hypocrisy and greed and hate, you can't just be like, oh, well, I'm just a human. It's all about Jesus. Don't pay any attention to me. Like, no. No, it's our job to be like a signpost, to love the world and to communicate and do Jesus stuff in such a way that if the world is to come in and, and experience the body as it were, they'd say, oh, I think I'm getting the picture. It's becoming clear to me now. This is kind of what Jesus is like. And we prepare for the introduction. Yeah, this is, this is what it looks like. I'd love to introduce you to the one himself. It's a paradox. No pressure, but a lot of responsibility. Verse 27. John says, of this coming king, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. It's a bit of a weird euphemism. In that ancient context, uh, in a teacher-student relationship, a rabbi-disciple relationship, the student was virtually like the slave of the rabbi. They would have to do anything they said. They would serve them, lay, lay their life down for them. Later on, Jesus completely turns that on its head. But John is saying, the one who is coming after me, I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. In fact, that's the one thing that the disciple wouldn't do. Because that would just be inhumane. To take like the nasty camel poop sandal off of your teacher. That's just wrong. But John is saying, no, I'm not even, unworthy. I'm not even worthy to do that. And he exalts this Jesus. So I haven't mentioned his name. This Jesus, this Messiah, this coming king. So extremely, so wonderfully that he even goes on to talk about this Jesus as holy. The holy one is coming. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, um, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he tells us to uh, honor the Lord as holy in your hearts. Set apart Jesus as holy in your hearts. Has anyone been watching uh, The Chosen? Nathan, you guys into that? If you guys are like, what, what's Chosen? Bad Christians, bad Christians. <laughs> it's so good. It's a, it's a series. Um, I, I can't remember the details of it. It was just, it's a show about Jesus. And one of the things that's really stood out to me about this show, excuse me, that it really does a phenomenal job at like, um, presenting the humanity of Christ. 
It's beautiful. I mean, they, they laugh. There's these awkward moments. Like, it's, it's, it's human Jesus. It makes, it makes me think, surely this is what it must have felt like to walk with Jesus, to live with him and watch him, be confused as he did his awesome Jesus stuff. And that's great. But Jesus isn't only human. He is also the word who became flesh, the holy one who come and dwelt with us. Sometimes I wonder if, if the church doesn't kind of do this. And we sort of oscillate between extremes. Whereas maybe a generation ago, the church only ever talked about the holiness of Jesus. And you only did so in hushed tones with your head bowed because he was just that holy. And then maybe another generation comes along and Jesus is just my homeboy and he's down with my sin because he's just cool like that. But isn't it true that Jesus is something else altogether? Our friend who meets us when we're in our greatest need and also the holy one who came and dwelt among us, his own creation. And I think perhaps now, maybe this is just me, but as I look around and consider, well, where are we at as a generation, as a church? Do we understand the fear of God? Does that make you uncomfortable, me even saying those words, the fear of God? Yeah, for sure. A, a lot of people, they're like, I don't, yeah, that, that just triggers me. It, it takes me places that just feel unhealthy. Like, the, how do I love a God who I'm supposed to fear? I don't quite have a category for that, so I think I'm going to react against that a little bit. And yet it's, it's, it's so fundamentally biblical, not just Old Testament. Cover to cover, learning to fear the Lord because he is the Holy One. And when we come into his presence, there should be a sense of awe, fear, and trembling. He is the maker. He is the judge. He is the king. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And if we're going to prepare a generation to meet Jesus, we must know something of his holiness, his friendship, absolutely, his goodness, his mercy, and his holiness, and his wrath to come. And perhaps that's something to unpack in a small group. What does that mean? What does that mean to me? What does that look like lived out? If it's such a big deal and fundamentally biblical, Lord, help us all. Help us to get closer to your heart and who you really are. He says in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John baptized in water, which was, it was a, a symbol of one turning away from their sin. It was a, it was a purity rite, is really what it was. Uh, again, 1 Peter actually talks about this a few verses later. I quoted from 1 Peter 3.15. About five verses later, he talks about baptism as a, it's a, it refers to a cleansing, a washing. It's an appeal to God for a new conscience, a clean heart, 
It's not the physical removal of dirt from the body. It's not the actual act of baptism that saves one, but it's an appeal to God. Do something in my heart. I am unclean. I am a sinner, and I need you to wash me. And not merely because I'm terrified of the consequences of my own sin, but because I'm desperate to live in freedom and joy and, and, and to know intimacy with you and others. And my sin tends to just like wreck my relationships. Jesus, would you clean me? Would you help me? And so baptism, which Jesus commands all of his followers to participate in, is this picture of, yes, Jesus, I'm coming to you because I am also a sinner and I need you to cleanse me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to give me a new heart and fill my heart with your desires and your love. Help me. And that's baptism. That's why John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a whole lot more that we can say about that. What does he even mean by that? How did he even know to call Jesus a lamb? It, it's like really bizarre if you consider the context. Like where, where did he come up with that? I suspect the Holy Spirit gave him these words to say. But then he says of Jesus, I baptize with water. But the one I'm talking about the other one who comes after me, who was before me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's another wonderful paradox. So John prepares a generation by confronting them with the reality of their sin-stained hearts. We've got a sin problem. We need to be cleansed. Jesus has come to die for your sins and mine and for the world. And to baptize you and I, the sinner, the repentant, not just with more water, but with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I love this. I absolutely love this paradox. Okay, here, let me, let me, let me, let me go in reverse order. Here's where we get it wrong. Here's, here's where the church, here's where Christians get it all twisted. We think that we start with, I'm a sinner, I've done all of these things, I, I've had all these ill motives, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in denial about it, I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven, I need to be made new. And so we, we almost intuitively know baptism, that makes sense. But here's where we make the mistake, we get baptized and we say, okay, I'm gonna stop living that life, I'm gonna stop doing those things and thinking those thoughts, and now I'm gonna do other things, better things, godly things, churchy things. And so we get this idea that really this whole Jesus thing is something to do with me stopping one form of behavior or way of thinking and then replacing it with new actions and thoughts. Is that right? Uh, maybe not totally. <laughs> maybe not totally. For sure, if Jesus gets a hold of your heart, cleanses you, fills you with his love, oh, it's, gonna, it's going to result in what looks like a very different life. Or maybe not. I actually have friends, some of you know, um, one of my friends and mentors, the pastor of Grace City in Corvallis, his name's Seth Trimmer. 
Um, we were in Arizona together earlier this week from, for uh, Every Nation Pastors Cluster. Every Nation is the family of churches that we're a part of, Grace City. And so I was with Seth, and we were talking about this and that, and I was confessing um, all my sin, um, which I just love to do. And, and he said, Simon, I don't know what compelled him to say this, but he said, you know, you've got all this stuff going on, and I just, I love your, like, um, candidness. Me, personally, I am the best Pharisee you will have ever met in your life. Now, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, you're like, what is that, Pharisee, for what? Pharisee, it's, we'll be introduced to the Pharisees shortly. Uh, they're sort of this, this group of, like, elite, pious, like, holy guys, they, they, knew how to do, they knew how to go through all of the motions and say all the right things and to keep up the appearance of godliness, but their hearts were far, far from Jesus. And so it's actually possible to sort of quote unquote repent and say, I'm gonna like change these actions, but actually there was never really anything that wrong with your actions in the first place. I mean, heck, you may go to church, you may do all the right things, you never cuss when people are around, and and you do all these things, and you have the appearance of godliness, but it's possible that your heart is miles and miles away from Jesus. And so it's not merely a matter of behavior modification, changing one way of acting or thinking and and replacing it with some other things. This, this is what it is. It, it could be that, but you get what I'm saying. It's much more complex than just changing the way you act. We acknowledge that we are sinners. That's John's baptism. We acknowledge that, no, like there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I'm not God. I need to be saved. Jesus, would you cleanse me? And we turn towards Jesus. And you know what he gives us fundamentally? Not just a new way to act. He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. He fills us with the Spirit of God himself. Isn't that a wonderful paradox? The Christian journey is not so much become a Christian and do different things. It's follow Jesus and be filled with all the fullness of who he is, his love. And your actions and your thoughts and your lifestyle and everything else begins to flow out of that place, a heart filled, baptized in, baptized with, whatever language you want to use, with the Holy Spirit. Which is what I would say, you know what we need as a church? And I'm just going to stop here because I want to. As a church, you know what I'd like us to focus more on than anything? As we prepare a generation, as we prepare ourselves and our city to meet Jesus, Become a people who are more intent on being filled with the Spirit. That we would make time in prayer, that we would prioritize moments throughout our day to stop, be still, and sit at the feet of Jesus 
and say, Jesus, would you help me receive? Would you fill me afresh with your spirit, with your love today? Because there's nothing that prepares a world more for the coming king than a people who are constantly being filled with all the fullness of God himself. People who are overflowing with the love of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit who's being poured into our hearts over and over and over again. I want us to be the kind of people who are belligerent in the spirit. You know, get like drunk in the spirit. This is Paul, Ephesians. Don't get drunk with wine, get drunk in the spirit. You guys feeling me? (laughs) Puff, puff, pass. In the spirit. I'm sorry. (laughs) I went out of the spirit for a second. I'm coming back, I'm coming back. (laughs) Can we stand together please? So there's John. We'll come back to John in a few chapters. There's so much more that can be said. But I hope that, I hope that we all leave here this morning with like a, a, somewhat of a vision. Jesus, I believe, wants to introduce himself to our generation, to our city in a very, very unique way. And he's inviting us to participate, to live our lives in a way, and to be filled with his spirit, and to love each other so that as our friends and our family and our, you know, our world looks on, we're preparing the way. Hunger begins to grow. Can I invite the worship team up, please? Hunger begins to grow. Curiosity is aroused. People are provoked to ask that all-important question. How is it that you have so much hope in your heart? Explain yourself. Give a defense for the hope that you have within you. What if we lived in such a way? People stopped and began to wonder. There's something going on here. Perhaps, perhaps Jesus is alive. Perhaps he is alive and he's with his people, and he's changing lives, and he's granting peace, dishing out joy like there's no tomorrow, grace, forgiveness. Perhaps there is a way, perhaps I can be forgiven. I don't have to live my life in the dark. I don't have to carry around this shame. All the stuff that Jesus does, Lord, help us. Help us to prepare the way. Casey, I've prepared the way for you now. We're going to take communion, guys, and Casey's going to lead us in the moment. All right, hello. So, I'm I'm going to read out of Psalm 23 and then kind of share with you what God's been telling me this week. Um, So, Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lay down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside, beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare me a table, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. So, one of our staff members mentioned that chapter in a meeting earlier this week, and since then I've just been overwhelmed with this feeling that God wants to remind us that he's still with us, that all of those things that I just read are still true, that he is the same God that is talked about here as the same Jesus that Simon just spent this time talking about, as the same Jesus who walks with you every day. Um, He's there. He is providing love and comfort and justice and mercy and all of these things that we crave, but he's saying you already have what you need. You already have me. He's the same Jesus that says, he's the same Jesus that says, take it and eat it, this is my body. He's the same Jesus that takes the cup, says thanks and gives it to his disciples and says, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant. So as you guys come up to either table on each side, um, my balcony friends, there's a table with communion cups, or you can come down here and grab communion down here. Um, But as you're coming up and doing so, I just want you to remember and think about that, like, all of these people that that I just mentioned, that Simon's mentioned, they're the same person. Jesus is here. And he's done this for you. Um, He's the same person who made all of the promises in that psalm, and he's the same person who made all of those promises in Matthew. Um, So yeah, I'm going to pray, and then you guys can come up. Gluten-free is over on the side. Jesus, thank you for being the same yesterday as you are today as you will be tomorrow. Thank you for being a strength and a comfort when we need you most. Thank you for being the person who is with us in our triumphs and the same person who's with us in our sorrows. As we walk through unknowns and walk through sorrow and walk through happiness, thank you for being with us. Thank you for this moment and thank you for this morning. Amen.